When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. This is Let's Do the Right Thing in association with RadioWorks. Presented and curated by Adam Hopkinson. This is the LDTRT podcast, brought in conjunction with Passion Media and RadioWorks. It was set up to tell the story of leaders in the media industries and focusing on their journeys and motivations. I launched a media agency last year, Passion, to focus on fashion, entertainment and leisure verticals, and I've had loads of great advice in doing so. In fact, a lot of it from guests on this podcast. I am still indeed on the mission for best advice. Delighted to be speaking today with Ed Sister. Ed, where do we start? You're the founder and group CEO of 4Media, a pilot, which we'll touch on, I'm sure, and a storyteller bringing content to life. Let's see how you get on today with audio. How are you? Very well. Nice to, nice to meet. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming in. It's lovely to meet you and lovely to talk to you. We, we've spoken to a couple of people already in your organisation. We spoke to Duncan um, a couple of months ago. In fact, actually, I'm sure Duncan may have told you a story that we met a couple of weeks ago in number 10 as well. I'm telling everybody if he isn't. Uh, also, Lee Curtin, we've spoken to, and now, and now we have you in the chair. So thank, thank you for coming in. How are you? How's it going? And what, what are you doing over here? Uh, well, I've got over the jet lag, but no, it used to be a trip that I made uh, every single month. Over the last few years, and COVID obviously had a, a fairly significant impact on travel, I've tried to cut those trips down to about three or four a year now. So this is one of my uh, quarterly visits, um, hanging out with the team, getting new new faces, and just get reacquainted with, uh, with Duncan, who's only recently been appointed as our new UK CEO. We like Duncan a lot. He's a great guy. Yeah, he really is. He's a little bit too good looking, I think, you know, but you know, not a lot I can do about that. Um, so, so Duncan's come in as a CEO in the UK and you're the group CEO. How have you found building um, the group out for 4Media? And particularly the question I want to ask is how have you maintained the culture of the individual businesses within the group? That's a big question. Um, if I rewind the clock back to 2008 when I founded the, the first company, it was actually called 4Media Relations at the time, I set about almost immediately growing what, is now commonly called an integrated media group. At the time, that wasn't really a word that was used too much, um, but it was a part of our business plan for the first three years at least to really come up with a rounded solution for our clients. And never in a million years would I imagined me being here in 2023 with a established business in the US. That was something that it was an opportunity that landed on my lap um, a few years ago. and. You, you touch on culture there. Uh, interestingly enough, since January of this year, I've been on a cultural 
mission because um, what I'm not going to sit here and tell you is it's easy or everything's great. Uh, there's definitely been significant challenges that we've faced both in the US and the UK um, when, when companies grow really, really quickly. So it, culture is something that we've really addressed uh, this year and it's definitely ongoing. Part of the challenges that we faced early on was we were bringing in lots of different people from lots of different walks of life. We weren't just doing one thing. We started off as a broadcast consultancy, mainly because I'm a broadcast yep. PR guy. Uh, we grew very quickly. We developed a name for ourselves, but we didn't want to just have one thing to sell to our clients. Um, when I was working with clients, uh, as I spent most of my time back in the early days, I learned very quickly that to give the best possible service, we needed to bring in other experts, other areas of expertise. So we founded Atomic Research in 2009, so only a year after we founded Full Media Relations. Uh, that grew very quickly as well. We, we discovered a, a, a real need and a real passion actually for market research. Uh, Ian Jenkins, he's our global head of insights. Um, a couple of years after... Um, founding Atomic, I acquired his agency. So Ian's been with us for, for a good number of years. He's a fantastically qualified creative insights market research person. So effectively, if you're to look at the spectrum of research, you've got quant and qual, kind of two ends of uh, a spectrum. Um, we had then two research agencies within the group, so a qual side and a quant side, and these are two very, very different skill sets. Yep. Then you layer in broadcast public relations, and it's an even different skill set. And then quickly after that, we discovered a need and a want for, for public relations. So Duncan, who you met with recently, um, I pulled him and uh, Fiona Jull out of a company that they were working at, um, a big entertainment PR company. I said, hey, guys, we need to set up a PR agency. So I took a minority stake in that company and they grew Stature PR over the next seven or eight years um, to become a first-in-class PR events, um, specializing in entertainment and healthcare and beauty, as well as other, some other consumer brands. Uh, but the move last year, uh, again, touching on your culture question there, was since moving to the US in 2016, I had definite leadership challenges in the, in the UK office. The UK business, it, it, it declined um, mainly because I wasn't there and some of the great people I'd hired over the last, over that sort of decade, um, they, uh, they didn't fall out of love with the company, but with not, not me being there, it was, uh, uh, it was challenging. You know, yeah. the new leaders that came in, they brought new systems and processes. So um, after a turbulent sort of five or six years, we had a fantastic group of people remaining in the company. They needed a good leader. Uh, I'd known Duncan from, from my years uh, back at school, actually, in, in, in Scotland. So I'd, I was very, very confident he could do it. Plus, he was running Stature PR at the time. So I uh, acquired that whole agency back in October last year and transplanted all of the Stature people, who are all now four media group people, um, to form a bigger company in the UK with Duncan at the helm as, as UK CEO. And there was a definite culture, um, not clash, but differences in the way that they were doing things and the way that we were doing things. So what we did was we, we listened to both sides and really tried to start with a brand new sheet of paper, a brand new chapter. Duncan was instrumental in that. He's a great culture champion anyway. 
And I, I touch wood, I can successfully say everybody's been onboarded well. Great. Everybody respects the new culture. And in a, I think, a simplistic view, we've tried to tease out the best parts of both sides of that culture to form a new UK full media culture. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It's lovely to hear that everything's integrated and going well. But where do you focus your time now? I assume that you're 90% in the, in the US? Yeah, I mean, the US is a much bigger business. Um, the, UK, the UK is a significant part of our history, a significant part of the legacy. And really, it was, uh, we used the UK to springboard ourselves into, into the US. But it's a very, very different business in the US. And the US is uh, 100-plus people. We span from LA to New York. We have all the products and services that we have in the UK, but more. So we have a large media buying department, a large media buying team. We have an influencer agency, which we have a standalone influencer agency in the group. We have a big digital team. And then obviously we have our broadcast and our production teams as well as the research. So again, we are all one company, Full Media Group. We are both integrated in what we offer our clients, but the the US is definitely bigger and has a wider range of products. How, How did you find launching in the US? It was challenging, I'll be honest. Um... People don't believe this, but I was um, with my very close friend um, who at the time was living in London. Uh, we, we, have, we have and did fly together uh, for many, many years. He's originally from the US and he, we were sitting in London in December over a beer saying, hey man, I'm, I'm moving back to America. You should come with me. It's a good market. And I thought, you know what? He might have something there. So I came home for Christmas, um, should I say come home because we were in London. I went back to Scotland for Christmas. I had my, my wife and uh, my one at the time small child. And I said, hey, after Christmas, I'm going to head out to, to the US. Give me a few months and I'll come back and forth. But I'm going to see if there's something viable there for us. So in January 2, 
I arrived uh, in, uh, in America uh, and I knew where I wanted to live and base the company. And this was a big challenge and I think a big surprise as I started to grow the business because I chose Northwest Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> and mainly because I knew it well. I'd been going there to visit my friend for, for many years. So I already had a good friend network. Uh, and most importantly, my wife had a good friend network. Happy wife, happy life and all. Yeah. Um, but the business side, it's a very, very interesting landscape. It's home to three um, Fortune 100 companies. One of those companies you will be familiar with, Walmart. Mm -hmm. So it's a really rich retail consumer brand landscape. There's a lot of wealth there. There's a lot of brand presence there. Ex-president. Yes, yeah, yeah. The ex uh, ex president, famous for famous for that region as well. But I did struggle in the first six months finding the talent we needed, and I made a decision within that first six months to really grow something remote, which I'd never done before. So, my my original intention was to try and transplant this talent, so go to the big major cities and bring them to Northwest Arkansas. Although it's a really, really cool place to be, um, you've got to go and visit it, really. It's one of the fastest cities growing in America still, one of the best places to live in America still. Um, but a lot Was of it, Is it Little Rock? No, no, it's actually in Bentonville, okay. which is in the northwest quadrant, that tiny little corner. Um, very different to Little Rock in many ways, um, but it has a unique character of outdoor space, but small town big city amenities. It's got great restaurants, great nightlife for, um, uh, for, for a small town. It's got a phenomenal cycling community. There's a great cycling network and riding and running is a big part of my life as well. But what it didn't have is a talent dense media population. So I, uh, within the first month, realized that I had to get in the plane and travel more. So luckily I have a plane and I'm mobile and America's a big place. So I spent the next few months traveling Chicago, LA, Atlanta, New York, meeting with people. So at this stage, for the first six months of the business, it was really trying to develop a business plan and then execute a recruitment strategy. And also I was dealing with a visa, which was wow. again, another complication. But in 2016? 2016, yeah. Okay, so just as the world had gone nuts in terms of Brexit and voting Trump in. Exactly. <laughs> Both sides of the Atlantic had this you crazy go? <laughs> political landscape. But yeah, I was right there with Trump. It was, it was hilarious. But it was, um, I think one of my, one of my skill sets, I'm, I'm, I'm way, way better uh, at a very, very small number of things. Um, if I do, I have this quadrantal rule that I do with some of the executives or people that work with me closely, which is a, you basically take a piece of paper, you divide it into four squares, and you start with something that you're uniquely able at, able, competent, or incompetent. And when you first start the exercise, if we were to do this together now, you would probably think, well, I'm uniquely able at loads of different things. Yeah. But if you actually go through the exercise, you realize that you're only uniquely able, i.e. you're the only person in the organization that can do this thing or can do this thing well. Most people have only got two or three things in that quadrant. So one of the things that I'm <clears throat> quite good at and I enjoy is recruitment. So I was spending in the early days probably 90% of my time trying to build our organization based on talent. And that's a full-time job. I was effectively a full-time headhunter going out, breaking into companies, well-established companies, 
And it was it was a big challenge because why would a successful person at a market leading agency jump ship to join a company with one or zero employees at the time? So it all came down to setting a North Star. So we had a very defined vision in the US when we were trying to build it. And that vision was something that I used to get people excited about. And we have been so fortunate, if we look at the team that we've got, that some of the, uh, the early pioneers, I call them in the company, that really took a huge leap of faith and believed in me, believed in the company, believed in what we were doing, they, uh, one of the reasons why I've got the utmost respect for them is they took all the risk. Um, the company, yes, of sure, sure, we assume some risk, but it's the people that took the risk that really defined who we are today. And somebody said to me the other day, I was, I was at an event in New York a few weeks ago, saying, um, how have you grown this company so quickly? Because we are now the number one uh, broadcast consultancy in the US. We're, we're the biggest um, by, by volume, we're the biggest by people, we're the biggest by clients. Um, and the answer was simple. I haven't built it. I genuinely haven't. I've been perhaps the architect or the person to initially take the time to uh, reach out to these people. But the people have built the company. Uh, and that's something from a cultural perspective that I really tried to enforce. Um, we had a really significant higher uh, tail end of last year. And I'm proud to say January of this year, we, we officially launched our, our uh, executive team. And it was a big move for me in my career as well, because when you're the CEO and you've grown the company yourself, you always fall into that trap where you have to do things that you don't particularly enjoy doing. But for the first time in our company's history, we've got a fully fledged executive team now. So I have five people all reporting into a COO and I effectively have one report that COO reports into me. That took me probably four years to build that team. It was a really um, considered effort. I, I handpicked these people to effectively run and operate the whole group. Uh, and really, what do I do now? My job is simple. It's vision and growth. And that's the thing that I'm really good at. It's the thing that I enjoy. And it's the thing that the company actually needs. Um, I'm not the best operator. I can do it. And I have done it. And I probably will continue to do it if I ever need to. But um, getting the company into a position where it can firstly afford it, because that's yep. an expensive team to have. But secondly, getting you in a position where you being the CEO, able to do um, all the things that you're uniquely able at, enables the people around you to have a better work-life balance. Because when I'm operating the company, I was making perhaps lots of people frustrated because I'm not that natural-born operator yeah. that our current COO is. The, um, and it sounds like it's worked, and it sounds like it's a great setup. I, I had a uh, description of the, the difference between a COO and a CEO from somebody a few years ago, and I really like it. So COO looks up and out, and the CEO, did I say CEO? The CEO looks up and out, and the COO looks down and in, and that then changes the complete definition of those two roles, so managing everybody, running the operations, and then the CEO driving the vision and the purpose of the company. I've heard that before, and I think that's a really good reminder. I need to use that next okay, time. Excellent. You heard it here first. It's, you a, didn't know. it's a perfect analogy. <laughs> yeah. um, and if you look at the, the profile 
of um, CEOs, generally speaking, most CEOs will fall into that category of they're better at doing that, and the COOs, the 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 inverse. Absolutely, do the stuff that you're great at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. And okay, so those, those sound like a number of really good do's that you set up in uh, in building the group and launching in the US. Are there any don'ts or any things that you've learned along the way that you're happy to share that, that, that we, we might get some insight from? Sure, yeah. Uh, putting me on the spot now, but yeah, I'm, I'm a fairly, sorry. No, no, I'm a fairly <laughs> transparent guy anyway. And I think in business, um, the, the war stories, it's great hearing what successes are, but I think the the negatives um, are often more valuable for, for business people. Well, I tell you, I lost seven months right at the beginning. And one of my, I would say, challenges or weaknesses, whichever way you want to phrase it, is I'm very, very headstrong. And I think a lot of leaders and CEOs are in the same position. I drew a business plan. And uh, as an integrated agency, research is a huge part for us. And it's actually our four-stage process. So we start everything with clients at a conversational level or a project level with insight. It's really, really important. So it made complete sense in the business plan that I drew up to say, hey, the first people I'm going to bring into the company are insights people. I want to grow the research division because that's the first stage in our process. So I had all this worked out in my head. And I went on the road and I wasted months trying to bring in qualified, experienced research professionals um, from various competitors and various other companies. And it just wasn't working. I was banging my head against a brick wall. And I literally wasted more than half a year of trying to bring, and a lot of money, trying to bring these people into the organization. And it wasn't until I, I realized that I'd failed, and I admitted to myself, look, I am failing at this. It is not working. Um, and it wasn't until I had that realization moment and the confidence to accept it that I rewrote the business plan. I should have done that probably month two because I knew right in the first month going, this isn't, this isn't clicking, it's not going right. I should have listened to my instinct. And as soon as I rewrote the business plan and go, hey, what am I really, really known for in the UK? What am I good at? What can I talk about? It's, it's broadcast public relations. So the first call I made, the first headhunt I made I actually managed to hire that person. And after that first person was hired, it was just, um, I'm not going to say it was seamless and easy. It definitely wasn't. But the whole business started to take shape. So I think it's important when you're starting out to be very, very self-conscious and self-critical. Use people around you. And if something's not working, just stop. I'd also say another um, big um big learning point for anybody in the organization is when you're hiring an entire company, and that might be three or four people, or in our case, it might be 30 or 40 people in the first couple of years, you've got to allow yourself a margin of error. I'm not perfect. Um, luckily, my batting average tends to be relatively high, but I still make mistakes and I still bring in people into the organization that might not be the best fit. They might be great people, but they might not perhaps have the skill that we need. Um, Or in some circumstances, they might just be a bad cultural fit. And we learned the hard way a couple of times where, again, I was so headstrong going, this person's got the perfect skill set. This person's got the perfect background. And I ignored the cultural damage they were doing to certain parts of the business and 
didn't make the decisions quick enough to exit them. So the second thing I would say is when you think that something or somebody isn't right, by all means, take a consensus, by all means, take appropriate HR measures, but don't delay the decision, even if that person's a moneymaker, because I've learned firsthand a salesperson, if it is a salesperson, because they're often the last people you want to let go, but they can also be some of the most challenging in personalities, yes. for good or bad. <laughs> the longer you hold on to those people, even though they might make it, be making you a direct income, the passive income that you are losing from that person, be it other team members might be leaving, other team members might be inefficient because of that person, the damage that that does to the organization almost in every case that I've seen, outweighs the damage of just letting that one person go. Uh, absolutely. And that the damage it does to you personally in the organization as well, because if you recognize that there is a problem there with a character, then everybody else has as well. And they're wondering what you're doing about it. You need to get it done. Mm. Yeah, it comes down to effective leadership. People need you to see... Uh, that you lead. And often, in my experience, um, making mistakes is not the issue. One thing I say into the company, to everybody, and they all know this, that I don't see mistakes as mistakes. And I encourage everybody to be completely honest and transparent. And when you make a mistake in the company, it's okay. We, we own that mistake and we, we learn from that mistake. And that goes from me too. So I'm often quite vocal about my own mistakes. And I think it fosters more of a transparent relationship with your team when they see that you are just human. And when I stand up and say, hey, guys, I made a hiring error here, um, what's important is that the company sees me taking action. I completely agree. I, w I wish we saw this everywhere. But it, it, surely it's a simple thing that you know, everybody does make mistakes, but you have to be able to fail safe and learn from it. The problem is if you fail multiple times at the same thing or if it's malicious, then obviously you've got, you've got to get out of there. But yeah, everybody makes mistakes. Wow, and it's, it's received well by the, by the, by the company that, that you have that attitude? You probably have to ask them. I might well do that. <laughs> but I would expect, I mean, it's, it's, it's a permanent frustration um, in you know, the daily news cycle that you're going on. The politicians would come along and do something. Why don't you just say sorry? You know, I don't think it's a, a, an admission of weakness or anything. It's an admission that you have made a mistake. And we do expect people to do so. So good for you. Mm. An interesting book that I'm reading at the moment is uh, No Rules Rules. It's the Netflix story okay. by Reed Hastings. Um, it's a cultural book. It's a very, very interesting cultural book. And the, and the um, co-author of that has uh, written another cultural book. And you can tell her impact in, in the book. Because Reed Hastings is the CEO from, from Netflix. And to your listeners out there, I think it might be an interesting... Anyone that's aspiring to start a new company, grow a new company, or like from my perspective from January this year of having more of a, a, a cultural um, review, check-in point, see where we're at. It's a great book to read. Uh, it's not for everyone. And you've got to remember that, that, that Netflix was effectively a tech company and they, and they grew that. But one of the th takeaways from it is um, candid feedback. How can an organization embrace feedback? And it needs to start from the top. And what I learned with reading that book, there's a couple of things that we already do at Four Media Group that we're, we're proud of. And we, we built 
kind of unknowingly. And the first one was we've got an incredibly talent-dense organization. If you look at our skill sets and our people, especially in the U.S. side, because it's a, a much bigger business these days, um, we are very, very dense in talent. And the second thing is I've always embraced feedback. It's not that easy for people in the organization to feel comfortable giving feedback to the CEO. And I'm not going to sit here and say that everybody gives me feedback and everybody feels comfortable. But what I will sit here and tell you is um, I remind everybody, I do a, a monthly CEO update, which is a video call where we have all team members from across the globe dialing in to 15 minutes of me um, singing some praises, giving some big company news, trying to um, any blockers or challenges the business or the market or the industry is facing, we talk about. But it's a great chance for me to give a little back to the company. And I always remind everybody saying, hey, my door is, or is open. Uh, and I give an open forum for anybody to ask any question they want um, in, in front of the whole company. There's only ever a few people that have got the confidence and it's usually a few people that are perhaps the closest to me, which is a shame. But again, going back to this, um, we call it essential feedback. Uh, the essential feedback in our organization, it just needs to follow a few simple rules. But what we try and enable the, the people in the, that, that work for us in the organization is a voice. And for the people that know me, is I, I enjoy being challenged by absolutely everybody, so long as it's done in the right way. Because just because we've, we've hired somebody new, by all means, they can see our systems, they can see our processes. We want them to always look at our systems and processes and make sure, hey, is that the best process or the best system for this particular task? And if it's not, let's change it. I'm really into innovation, innovation in terms of the company. So I'm, I'm very comfortable with change. I try and embrace change and I try and teach and mentor the people that, that work with me to be okay with change. Change in any organizations typically don't go down that well. People don't really like it. But if they can see the benefits of that change and they understand why the company is doing that change, so perhaps giving them more context, usually they'll embrace it and get a much better positive outcome than just seeing the company deviate with no, with no real contextual background of why. And is there a potential big change coming? Is there a, an event planning or is there, is there something on the horizon that you're thinking about now? Well, it's no, um, it's no secret that we have been on the acquisition trail for some time now. There's a small agency in London that, you know, that my one. <laughs> <laughs> Just perhaps, saying. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps we should have a conversation. Um, yeah, we, we did. We've only done one acquisition in the, the US and it was, it, was, it was successful for us. We wanted to be in DC. Um, we, we bought a 22 or 23-year-old uh, agency there that was very, very good at uh, one specific thing, but had a fantastic group of clients. Um, so we acquired that agency, integrated that agency into the group, and that enabled us to, to work with those clients and sell them more products and services that, that we do. And it was, it was great. So we, we do have a plan to continue that acquisition uh, trend. We're only looking at a certain number of agencies, predominantly on the US side of the business, just because that's where the, the biggest growth area is for us right now. Um, so I'd say that's probably the, 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 the focal point for a lot of the cultural challenges that we might be facing. Um, luckily, we've had a few years of onboarding 
groups of people from certain companies. We've obviously had that one uh, transaction. So we, we've, we're building right now what we're calling our cultural map. And the cultural map is a document that we're trying to build for not just the people that work for us right now, they should all live and feel that, but almost as a recruitment tool. The problem that I have when you look at our purpose, our vision, our mission, and our values, those, those four sections, is if we just focus on values, most companies in today's world, especially if they've been through any sort of formal branding process, will have a defined values group. Those values should never really change and they should be true to the company. But I've always found them relatively subjective. For example, one of ours is adventurous. You know, we're adventurous by nature. But the definition for me, what I might find adventurous, is perhaps going to be slightly different yep. for maybe one of our PR account managers. You, you mean the, the definition of adventurous for somebody who flies fighter pilots <laughs> might be different? <laughs> it's true, though, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and this is, this is a company that we want to be representative of everybody's values. So what we're trying to do, what we are doing right now, is creating an extension to that, that values, vision, mission proposition, where we want to talk about warts and all within our organization. So what, what, what we call adventurous is this. This is what we expect from you. This is what you should expect from us. There's a whole host of things that we're trying to bring into the company. So we can really, for example, if I was sitting down meeting a new member of the team that were a prospect, the prospective member of the team that we're interviewing, we want to be able to give them that document and say, look, this is our company, current state. Do you feel aligned with some of those values? This is our mission. This is our vision. Um, what we don't want to do is just put a vision on the wall like some companies and have it there when people box tick, box tick. You know, you need to really, really live that vision. And I would say it's probably one of the singly most important things. So I'll stress that again. The single most important thing for anybody trying to grow a company is to have a defined vision that you as the recruiter, so not an external agency that you're bringing in, you as the recruiter, you need to own that recruitment process, if, especially if you're the CEO and you're growing something. You've got to be able to describe what that vision is, paint a picture for that person. Because if they don't feel that they're aligned with that vision first and foremost, or if they don't feel that that vision aligns with where they want to go, they're probably never going to work. And I would say from when you're growing a company and you're trying to forge a new department or you're trying to forge a new country like we were doing in the US, you really need to have that North Star. So when you start speaking to people, you can instantly align them to it. And then really my management style, and again, every company is different and every leader is different. My management style is very defined. So I typically try and find the best person I can from the organization that I'm actively trying to um, take them from because usually they're always employed. We get very, very few people off job boards. Uh, it's direct outreach from me or referrals. Um, so we give them a specific job, a specific role, and that role might be really varied. So if you're coming in in a senior position, it might not just be one specific job spec. We might merge three together or say, hey, this is a big role. You're going to have to roll your sleeves up. 
um, and get involved in different, different departments. So that's okay. It doesn't need to be completely buttoned up. But what is not okay is you need to have that conversation right at the outset before they start, that the role might go um, beyond what, what, what uh, the initial spec is. So when they're completely aligned with that role um, and they've got the vision of the company, I very much get out of the way. And I just let them run with it and I let them make mistakes. I keep a, obviously an ongoing relationship with these people and I'm actively involved in the company and they see me daily, hourly. Um, you know, I'm still very, very present, but I'm not micromanaging these people because it's impossible to scale. And I think um, when you get to that kind of mid-size agency, 100 plus people, let's say, you really need to um, have complete faith and trust in your people let them make mistakes, give them autonomy. It might not be the way that you do it and you might end up losing money and it's not all um, great. I'm not going to sit here and say that process doesn't always break. It does break. But what that process does enable you to do is scale your business. You know, if, if I think about the milestones in the US, you know, I remember when we hit 10 million and that was great and then we got to 20 million and I said, well, hey, that's, that pre presents different challenges. At those milestones, when those challenges present, presented itself, all I wanted to do was get more involved every stage, more involved operationally, more involved because I cared. If I didn't resist that urge, we would have stifled growth. And as the company gets bigger and we brought in more people, I try and take a step back each, um, almost each quarter. So I'm slowly taking a step back about absolutely everything. And the goal is by the end of this year for me to be almost completely out of operations. I'm still a little bit involved in various strategic things um, because then I can effectively focus 100% of my time on doing the things that I'm really good at, like we've already talked about on that, on that vision and, and growth path. Fantastic. You mentioned earlier on about uh, your quadrants, and I was listening, about having uniquely able in the top right-hand corner. Um, there is a skill that you have that I think, certainly in this room, you are uniquely able to do, and that's flying. We talked about it a little bit. Um, where did that come from? How did, you, how did you get into flying planes? It's basically a second career of mine. It's a huge passion. And some people joke, say, well, where's your creativity? You know, you've got a painter for, for a sister and I have a very creative mum. And I said, well, it's flying, the most creative sport you can possibly do. It's a three-dimensional uh, exploration of the sky. But I, uh, I love it. And it's the, for me, it's a huge, it touches a part of my soul that nothing else does in my life. But no, I got into it very, very early on. My dad, he was a fighter pilot for the Royal Air Force and flew for... Uh, nearly 30 years for the for the Royal Air Force flying various types of uh, frontline fighters. So I, uh, I developed a passion for flying from him. Uh, he taught me to fly uh, at a pretty young age. I got my private pilot's license and uh, set about trying to fly as many different planes and as often as I possibly could. But the, the big, uh, I suppose, clash that I had with my dad back in the day, and I suppose it was a bit of a mental barrier as well. It, what I really struggled with is I think there was an expectation of me to go into the military, uh, fly commercially. When my dad left the military, he went to go and fly for British Airways. And it was always expected that I would, I would, I would do that because I was, I was flying at the time. But um, I looked at the military and I just, uh, I loved the idea of it. I loved the idea about flying cool planes. 
but I just struggled with the idea of not being able to control fully my own destiny. And at the time, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be independent. So I, um, I started for media when I was 23. I didn't have much money. I remember selling, selling my car at the time to uh, fund the rent and the first member of staff that we had. So I certainly didn't have much money for flying and I'd have to go home and borrow my dad's Tiger Moth, which is an old biplane, to, to get, uh, get any flying in that I wanted to. But when I started generating more money and I could afford it, I bought, uh, I bought an aerobatic plane. Uh, I'd, I'd always done aerobatics, but I'd never had a really serious... Oh, it's making my stomach flip just thinking about it. <laughs> we, should, we should do the next interview at the airport. We can go and, uh, no. Go and fly. <laughs> no. Um, but then I just started off with my aerobatic career and I spent um, a solid decade of training. And I eventually managed to get to the top level of Unlimited and, and represented uh, the British British team, uh, the World um, Aerobatic Championships in France was my last event, uh, just before I moved out to uh, moved out to America. It is a full time job, the aerobatics, and I, I still keep it up, but I'm not I'm not competing anymore. Um, I spend most of my days um, flying uh, World War Two fighters these days with a good friend of mine who has a fantastic collection of uh, World War Two fighters, and we. Uh, we fly formation as much as we can, so that's my big, uh, big uh, passion these days. Formation, uh, formation aerobatics, and World War II fighters. And there's not many people in the world that, that <laughs> do it, but we're fortunate enough to be able to do it together. Indeed, and you are uniquely able to do that in this room, of course. Um, I, I, I wonder whether there's a, a correlation in your mind about being a pilot of a plane and relying on the engineering and the fuel and the design and everything you know, to, for, to then be the man who runs it with your career as CEO of the group. You're relying on the tilt, the skills, the team, the building, everything. Is it, is it a control thing overall, perhaps, in there? You're not the first person to ask me that in an interview like this. Um, yes, I think there is a certain amount of planning and training and experience that you can apply to uh, business that you would learn from flying. But I think the, the most important thing, if you want some synergy between the two, is the not just willingness, but desire to continually evolve and learn. And if you speak to any pilot, uh, I don't care if they're like my dad, they've been flying for 50, 60 years, um, or your PPL pilot that's just started, they constantly learn. They're learning when they're flying on their own. They're learning when they're adding new ratings or flying different types. But that constant learning or evolution, if you don't really embrace that and really enjoy it, you probably won't make a very, very good pilot because it's, it's not like riding a bike. You don't just learn it once and then you can do it. Yeah, you can learn how to fly and then you can pretty much fly anything uh, if you keep it up. But if you're not learning new systems, new processes, constantly learning about the weather, um, constantly trying to improve your technique, um, learning about different systems, different types of aircraft, if you don't really embrace that and enjoy that, like I say, you probably would be not just a, a poor pilot, but probably an unsafe pilot. And the same in business, you know, you've got to constantly, especially in our world and media. Changes all the time. Evolution, it's, it's faster than the tech industry in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Wow, thank you. Uh, you. You mentioned the the vision of the group and your North Star a couple of times. Could you tell us what it is? Yeah, so the North Star for us is building the best-in-class company for both our clients and our people in the areas that we operate. So... Just stealing that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, what, what we try and do is, is break it down um, into our purpose statement for our clients because a, a vision is, is very good for a company, but how does a client fit into that? So we tend to lead with our purpose statement for our clients. But I think it's one of those, those things when you're looking at what... I, I don't sell to clients anymore. My job is predominantly building the best-in-class people. So one of the challenges or one of the conflicts that we had when we redid our brand guidelines and, and culture deck um, a couple years ago is some of the people in the organization said, hey, I don't think this is aligned with who we are today. And what we learned was, which was very interesting, is although we had a North Star that we were all working towards, my, my North Star was slightly different. And really the company had evolved beyond that and what we were trying to focus on was what, what excites the people in the company? Like, what is their true purpose? And it all came down to delivering the best results for our clients. That's what really, sure, the salespeople would get a commission when they close the deal. Well, that's great for them. But what about the operations? What about the delivery? What about the media teams? Um, when we sat down and spoke with them all like we did for this process, um, it's client recognition, client thanks. When a client's excited, that excites us. Uh, and that was really evident in, in that process. So the latest and most current iteration of our uh, vision and guidelines um, was actually written by the exec team and not me, which was, um, which was novel. Um, it, they were almost identical. They were just nuances and, and word changes. And the only thing, as I mentioned before, that, that remained was the, uh, the values. Fantastic. I think that draws us to a fairly natural conclusion there. Thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us. I found that absolutely fascinating, but I'm not getting in a plane with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Let's Do The Right Thing in association with RadioWorks, the UK's largest independent radio advertising agency. Let's Do The Right Thing is a Maple Street creative production, devised and presented by Adam Hopkinson. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 